That would be wonderful. Okay. We're actually on in New York City, but we're a fairly new program. It's called Speaking of Faith. We had a hard time naming this show. Mm-hmm. Um, but essentially, what, we're, what we do is uh, talk, speak intelligently about how people actually live with religious ideas, uh, religious traditions. And we sometimes, sometimes we do programs about a religious phenomenon or with a religious thinker, but we also often look at a subject in American life, and we've done a program on depression, on cloning, <laughs> on children, and, and try to draw out some different um, ways in which religious perspectives or perspectives of faith might distinctively illuminate that, might be offering different vocabulary and, and fresh ideas for our common deliberation. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. Uh, you're dancing around whether or not you're Christian, Jewish, Buddhist. Well, I I um, allow and invite deeply religious people to speak in deeply religious ways, whatever their vocabulary is. We don't dance around that. I mean, we, we take seriously where um, the depth with which any guest lives with their beliefs. Right. Um, but but okay. there are many different kinds of people on the show. So I've I have had mm-hmm. Christians, Jews, Muslims, Buddhists, and also people who are um, not uh, traditionally religious. But uh, oh right, my producer is saying if you're asking, are we a we're a journalistic program? Not uh, we're not. It's, this is not religious radio. It's a public radio program. Right. <clears throat> How come you're in Minnesota but you're in New York? Well, it's a national program. We've been creating right. it for about five years and it's produced at Minnesota Public Radio, but we're all over the country. We've just been weekly since July, so we're still fairly Great. new. And Great. Now, Mitch, I, I was, I'm hearing a little echo. I wonder, Susan, if you could turn Should down I your turn headphones. You down? Yeah, t- turn down your headphones a little bit. And that, let did me I keep. Just yeah, do it? I think you did it. Okay. Can you still hear me? Yes. All right. But don't go any softer. Okay. <laughs> All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I've spent the last two days reading you. Okay. And I read very carefully. Um, yes. Krista, are we going to, are you going to tell me when we're, are we taping now? Um, he, my engineer just needs to hear us speak for a, okay, for a couple fine, of minutes to get levels. Fine. Okay. In fact, he probably needs to hear your voice now and stop hearing me. So just tell she me spent something. the last two days reading the book. <laughs> tell me something mundane, like what you had for lunch. It, you know, it's raining okay. here in New York. As you know, because you're in New York. No. No. I'm, Are you in New York? Oh, oh. When you, no, when I say we're in New York, I mean we're on WNYC. No, no, I know. But where are you? Are you in <laughs> right Minnesota? Right now I'm in Minnesota. Yeah. Where in Minnesota? St. Paul. Uh huh. Well, here in New York, it's raining, and um, I just went to Starbucks so that I would be alert for this interview. Okay. So maybe I'm too alert. <laughs> Is that enough for him, do you think? I don't know. Mitch, how are you doing? Okay. For lunch, I had two soy cutlets with some salsa. Well, that sounds delicious. Yeah, they uh, were good. They were? Oh. Mm-hmm. Some are good. Some of those soy things are great, and some are not so They're good. They're getting better, I think. They are getting so much better. The trouble is once you have a bad one like the tuna burger, I don't know if you've tried the tuna burger. No, I, I tried the tuna burger a couple of years ago. It was so bad that I can never go back to the tuna burger. <laughs> okay, he has enough. All right, we should keep oh, okay. going. All right. <laughs> okay. All right. So so let me tell you what I what I want to do. Okay. I 
I want to talk about... I read your new book about Bill Wilson, which is right. fascinating. And I want to, to basically... What I'd like to do is take that story and trace very specifically, focus in on the spiritual and religious aspects of his life and an AA, right? So that okay. piece of it. And I and I'll I'll help you trace that line with me. But Okay. But I'm also very much aware that his story and the story of AA is also part of your story and I would like you um as much as it feels comfortable for you to be present in this as well and also, you know, speak in the first person um about some of the things that you've also written about. Okay, I can talk about alcoholism. The yeah. ways in which I can talk about Alcoholics Anonymous, of course, are limited. Yeah. Well, let Because we, of Bill's traditions. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, anonymity is a spiritual foundation of Alcoholics Anonymous, so people who right. are members of it or who aren't members of it um, can't really talk about it in a personal way for a variety of reasons. I mean, we can talk about that, too, because yeah. to me, one of the greatest... Uh, one of the greatest, I don't know what the word is, one of the greatest foundations of spirituality is what Bill called anonymity mm-hmm. and, you know, what Christ called humility. And I'm sure that Buddha also had a name for it. That's exactly the kind of thing I want to get at. So that's right. great. Um, I think I think I'd like to start with something that fascinated me about how you you describe the the religious environment and what was happening in this country religiously in the world in which Bill Wilson grew up for the, or in the early part of the century, or at the one at one and the same time he grew up with these strong traditions, and also sort of the American religion of democracy. But then right. there was this movement, well and, right? And there was transcendentalism. And I just want to tell some of that story about how you see that as a context that in some ways made AA possible, the spiritual aspect of it. I think it did. I think that um, what was happening in the 1850s and 60s before the Civil War in New England contributed in a very direct way to what Bill breathed in and out with the Vermont air at the turn of the century. And I think, you know, the whole sort of overturning of the idea of God as as an authoritarian male figure that really, you know, that that really, I I hate to say that one person did it, but certainly Ralph Waldo Emerson was a leader in making this happen. Mm -hmm. And because he questioned the authority of the traditional God. He was banned from Harvard for 25 years. So these people were quite courageous in saying that uh, that another human being could be divine, that the divine could exist in the song of a wood thrush or the reflections in a palm, that the divine did not have to be uh, defined in the, quote-unquote, in the old way, in the either in the Puritan way or even in the congregational way, uh, that the divine could exist anywhere and that it could especially, this was especially Emerson's point, that it could exist in other human beings. And of course, one of the things that Bill Wilson in his genius when it comes to spirituality understood was that it's a mistake to prescribe faith for another person, that you can say to another person, you must have some kind of faith. 
as Alcoholics Anonymous sort of does, but you cannot say to another person, you must have faith in X. That really needs to be up to the person. And that's what you know, really comes right out of, they didn't call themselves transcendentalists, but comes right out of, you know, the Concord, Massachusetts of the 1850s and 60s. And um, and also the kind of killing fields of the Civil War, which made, I think, the idea of an author- authoritarian God even harder for people. But that's sort of one of the threads that comes right down through New England history and ends up uh, in Alcoholics Anonymous, where, you know, because of what Bill wrote, I guess I should call him Bill Wilson or mm-hmm. Wilson, because of what Bill Wilson wrote, um, they, you know, God can be, it's the God of your understanding. It can be a radiator. It can be your Uncle Hank. It can be whatever you want it to be. And so he took it even further and said, you know, it's not that that the divine can reside in nature or in another person. It can reside wherever you say it resides, as long as it's not you. Um, the the fabulous Ernest Kurtz wrote a book called Not God, mm-hmm. um, kind of referring to that. And that's really how Bill Wilson understood God. And, pers- you know, he didn't prescribe it, but that's how he explained it to other people in trying to get them to have that change of heart that he understood was the key to all um, addiction treatment and alcohol treatment. And what does that say about the spirituality of addiction itself? Um, what's well, <laughs> And you I, know that I, through experience also. Yeah. I, you know, the spirituality of addiction, spirituality, as you know far better than I do, is such a tricky word, and it's come to mean so many things. But certainly, it was Bill Wilson's understanding, and it was a hard-won understanding. I mean, he was a man who was desperate to stay away from one drink. It was one man, one drink. And, you know, over a horrible, horrible 15-year period of his life, he slowly put together the different ingredients that ended up being a path to sobriety for him, and then ultimately ended up being a path to sobriety for millions of people and even not just alcoholics. But, he, you know, he very slowly put these pieces together. And at the end, he came to believe that what was required was for an alcoholic to have this wonderful phrase he used, a change of heart, that really the answer to addiction was not somebody yelling at you or, um, you know, to have more discipline or more willpower, that really the answer was some kind of internal spiritual shift. And there's a wonderful letter. In 1961, Bill Wilson wrote a letter to Carl Jung, and Jung had treated a man who ended up being one of the original men in Alcoholics Anonymous. And this man, Roland, had often talked about Jung, and Jung writes back to Bill, and he says... um, That's right. He says, I despaired of treating alcoholics because I knew that they couldn't get better unless they had some kind of religious experience. He called it religious. And And then he came out with this wonderful phrase. He said, it has to be spiritum contra spiritus. Right. I mean, you know, he draws that that. that there that that semantic kinship between spirits as exactly. in alcohol and the human spirit, exactly. but more than a semantic exactly. kinship, which is so interesting. 
Well, it you know, many, many people in Alcoholics Anonymous will say uh, that alcoholism, that drinking is a low-level search for God. In other yeah. words, that that the, the role of the spirit in, you know, in spirits, in the abuse of spirits is... Uh, is is profound in its multiplicity. And I think, you know, Bill Wilson understood that very well. He was a man who had turned against religion, um, who had walked out of church, who did not want to be told what to do, who, who had walked out of church specifically because they asked him to take a temperance pledge. <laughs> and he just thought it was a bunch of hooey. And however, he was a man who was extremely open to ideas. So he married a Swedenborgian woman from a Swedenborgian family. And, you know, all those ideas started to filter in through this kind of sieve of Yankee ideas and New England ideas. Well, talk about that mix. Talk about what was in that mix. Well, it's humanism. It's all humanism. I mean, all these different strands, the Swedenborgians, the the um the transcendentalists as you call them or as they are called mm-hmm. um the even the spiritualism of of new england at the turn of the century it it all really has to oversimplify ridiculously the same message which is that you know you can find the divine in other human beings and that god is not a punishing authoritarian man with a gray beard that god is far more various than that and that faith is far more various than anything that had been previously imagined certainly within the confines of religion so but it all kind of filters through um bill's mind which of course has been trained both by this this enlightened humanism and and by the fact that, you know, Vermont was dry when he was growing up yeah. and temperance was a huge political movement there. So he had actually studied temperance in school. He had an education about what allowed people to stop drinking and what kept people drinking. So he had all this information and all this humanism. And of course, he was an obsessive reader. And, you know, it all kind of went in one end and came out, um, of course, decades later as the glorious program of Alcoholics Anonymous. It, it is, it's a very, it's an interesting contrast. It's almost, there's some irony in this that that religion at that time was engaged in a fierce battle against alcoholism, against alcohol. Yes. And, and in a way, I mean, people like Bill Wilson and the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous were rejecting that, but they did really draw on some of the core of those traditions at the same time. How do you mean? Well, just belief in a higher power. I mean, they didn't, there, there was a very deeply, spirituality was always seen as an essential part of, of recovery, even from those earliest days. Well, no? I I don't I I sort of disagree. Okay. I mean, not I, for Bill. I think as it happened, spirituality was an essential part of recovery. And you know, the thing that's so confusing is his search, his kind of putting together the Bill Wilson program, which was the way he stayed away from a drink. Uh, then broadened out, and and a lot of other people got involved. Uh, Doctor Bob Smith, for one. Mm-hmm. Um, in in making the Bill Wilson program the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, for Bill Wilson, a direct experience of God was 
what finally allowed him to stop drinking. Yes. But he understood very well that that might not happen for everyone. And he understood very well, having turned his back on religion himself, that religion could not be part of Alcoholics Anonymous and that there could be no spiritual requirement for Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, you know, he would say uh, alcoholism, you know, is a spiritual malady, but he would never prescribe. And I think that what he really got from the um, the humanism and the kind of, well, it isn't even Unitarianism, the, the kind of openness of the religion of his youth, he got an incredible level of tolerance for individual searching. And I think that was almost sacred to him. In mm-hmm. other words, he his own religious journey was very, very interesting, but he was so clear that that was his religious journey and that it wasn't yours or mine or Bob's or anyone else's. Bob Smith was a tremendously uh, Christian man. His Anne Smith had memorized big chunks of the Bible. I mean, they were, you know, real, I don't know what to say, down-home Christians, I want to say. But, you know, they all understood, but Bill understood better than anyone, that you can't tell other people what to do when it comes to something this important. So, okay. Sorry. Well, so the identification of this as a spiritual malady was more important than prescribing a spiritual treatment? Exactly. I think he, I mean, he says somewhere in the, in the writing that, there, that he's not going to give any alcoholic any rules, that everything he writes, I think it's in the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, which he wrote, you know, later, is just suggestions. You know, he's, he's so, he's just a profoundly tolerant human being. And, you know, you see it in his personal life in the way he dealt with his family, but you also see it, you know, the, the program of Alcoholics Anonymous is imbued with this tolerance. It reeks of it. You know, even when he could lay down the law and say, you've got to pave this or you've got to do this. He never, ever did. He was he was such a kind of hands-off uh, kind of guy. And, and I think that's part of his genius. I mean, I think, uh, you know, this is why temperance movements have failed. This is why. And he also had seen prohibition come and go. Yeah. Um, that when it comes to something as deeply embedded as addiction or alcoholism or what you're going to believe in, nobody can tell anybody else anything. And I think, I don't know, you know, this may, I may be herring off in the wrong direction, but I think that was what he believed. Okay. And of course, he himself um, flirted or, or thought very seriously about converting to Catholicism. Later. But he ne- right. Right. Mm-hmm. But he never, ever, ever... Um, thought that other alcoholics should do that. In other words, he was very clear about separating his own religious search from Alcoholics Anonymous. The the uh, the Oxford group was was formative in the early years uh, for for they Bill were. Wilson and Bob Smith, I believe, and and eventually they broke away from them. But um, do do you think of them as a religious group? Oh, they were. They were. They? Yeah. I think, I mean, uh, the Reverend Frank Buckman was a Lutheran. I believe he was a minister, in fact. And and, he, right. And they had, these, they had these 
tenets? What do they have? Six tenets? Which they had six tenets mm-hmm. and four absolutes. Oh. Uh, I, I can't name the tenets. The absolutes were something like, are something like purity, honesty. Oh, yeah. I forget the other two. Yeah. Well, I mean, are, the one I circled, and I think this language also made its way into the big book, is uh, the age of miracles has returned, tenet five. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, That's a nice you one. You know, that is remarkable language. And and I just want to push a little bit, because I know what you're saying about tolerance uh, in AA is, is correct, but there's, I mean, that language of miracles is actually much bolder than many religious people will use in our time. So just, you know, how do you understand that kind of idea in this context? Well, I think the age of miracles has returned. You know, it's a pretty good tenet. I mean, and and I certainly think the idea of tenets and absolutes and also the Ignatian exercises. In other words, Bill had seen a lot of faith-based lists Mm -hmm. before he got into bed and wrote the 12 steps that famous day. So... And, but that's really another – that's really a, a different discussion. But the age of miracles has arrived. Now, that's a beautiful thing to say, and it doesn't tell anybody what to believe. No. In other words, um, it doesn't say what a miracle is. But how, it do you hear, how do you understand that, that phrase with all you know about, about AA? I mean, what, is, what meaning does that have? What's it talking about? Well, it depends, doesn't it? I mean, I think you could, you could apply it to medicine – you know, you could apply it to. I have no idea what the Oxford group meant by that. I, mm-hmm. I have to admit, mm-hmm. um, you could apply it to. You know, and, well, and I and I, I also can't imagine Bill writing that. In other words, it it has a kind of slight pushiness that. I mean, this is sort of what I'm trying to say about him that he just went to great lengths to avoid. And I mean. And as I say, his own life was one thing, but he he really understood that in in areas like this, people don't respond well to um, any suggestion that they can be told wh- what age has arrived. In other words, partly, you know, when I hear the age of miracles arrive, I think says who, <laughs> and I think that, <laughs> and I think that that Bill Wilson understood very well that you just have to be so careful when it comes to these things. And I think that's mm -hmm. why Alcoholics Anonymous has survived because there are a lot of people in Alcoholics Anonymous, as I understand it, that who don't believe in God, who Mm -hmm. are humanists or atheists or, and in that Alcoholics Anonymous in the, I think it's the first or second chapter, Bill talks about agnostics and atheists and how welcome they are. And, and, you know, um, He's he's he really tried to keep it open. So, well, then I I think what I'd like to I I, I do want to get into though um, you know some concrete. Here's what I think: this twelve steps AA uh, is so amazing when you get inside it, either through your own experience or through people you love, right? And the spirituality right. of it is profound and. Uh, and yet for people who don't know that, who haven't touched it or, or seen it sort of behind the veil, it's, it can even seem cult-like and language like the higher power. It just doesn't make sense. And uh, so what I, I mean, I think maybe the best way to, 
to try to draw this out is also to ask you through what you know of him, but also through your own experience, you know, what's some of these, what kind of spiritual weight and content some of these terms mean. But I mean, maybe it's better to look at, as we were talking about, something like anonymity, you know, how, what Mm -hmm. is the spiritual Mm -hmm. virtue in anonymity? Um, Well, I think, I mean, one of the things I, I was very struck by what you said about from how it looks from the outside. And I think that Alcoholics Anonymous is not very well understood um, from the outside. And it's partly the fault of the press, which I hesitate to say because, of course, <laughs> you and I are the press. Right. But, but you know, you can go to Alcoholics Anonymous and drink. Many people go to Alcoholics Anonymous and drink. There are many, many people in various stages of inebriation in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous. And... You know, the press kind of makes it sound as if, I mean, the only, I mean, this is Bill's genius. The only requirement to be a member of Alcoholics Anonymous is a desire to stop drinking at the moment that you walk into the room. And that's only if it's a closed meeting. You can go to open meetings, of which there are gazillions, um, even if you don't have a desire to stop drinking. You can go in there with a bottle and a bag. It's not a problem. So, you know, and, and the Somehow people don't know that. that the that the comes first as a step is really the desire, isn't it? That desire. But where well, does the, that the desire reco- where How do people get that desire? I don't know. But you don't even have to have it to go to, a, mm-hmm. to, go to a, um, an open meeting. And many people have the desire to stop drinking uh, for five minutes and they go to a meeting and then, you know, they're welcome there. I mean, it's, it's the openness of it. Is so astonishing to me. And that's why, you know, I don't mean to be dancing around, but it's hard to pin down what faith is in terms of what Bill Wilson laid out as the program of Alcoholics Anonymous because he was so canny about not laying it down. I mean, he really wanted to make it a moving target. And I think he did. And that's, as I say, that's why... You know, when people write about it, they almost have to misunderstand it. They have to say, well, AA requires you to stop drinking or AA does this or AA does that. But the truth is AA doesn't require anything. And is it religious? I don't think so. I mean, we can define religion and many people in AA are religious, but AA itself it it's it's so it has such a wide embrace. Yeah. But see, I'm not scared of that word religion either. I mean, we can also dance too much around. Well, I am. I mean, yeah. I'm. I, Susan Cheever, am religious, mm-hmm. but that's not relevant, really, to Alcoholics Anonymous. Even as Bill Wilson was, ultimately religious, but he was so careful to keep religion and Alcoholics Anonymous separate. You know, he did. You mentioned this in passing that he did have this very dramatic experience of what I think he called God of a blazing light and uh, absolutely right and a mountaintop and didn't he he stop drinking on that day yes there's no question that in his story you know he he was a man desperate to stay away from a drink and over this period of about 10 or 15 years he put together one piece at a time trial and error mostly error the things that helped him stay away from a drink. So he would get, for instance, that if he spoke to another alcoholic, he had a better chance of not drinking. And then he would think, oh, now I have it. And then he'd drink again, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. 
or he would get, as he got from Dr. Duncan Silkworth, the idea that alcoholism was a disease, that it wasn't a willpower problem, that he was allergic to alcohol, and and that that was why he couldn't drink. And he'd think, okay, now I've got it, you know, and then he'd drink again. But slowly he was getting it. And the last piece, um, which he got during his fourth hospitalization at Towns Hospital in Central Park West, um, was a direct extremely dramatic experience of God where Bill Wilson just feeling helpless and, you know, hopeless fell to his knees and cried out, God help me, you know, and he had, uh, you know, the room was suffused with light, a divine light. And, you know, he says, so this is the God of the preachers. I mean, for him, there's no question that he had you know, like St. Paul on the road to Damascus, that he had a religious epiphany and that that after that experience, he never drank again. Hmm. So for Bill Wilson, you know, it was religious and he needed that God peace that very re- – he does say this is the God of the preachers. So it's not, you know, the God of the wood thrush. He was it's sort of surprised of to encounter that God of the preachers, wasn't yes. he? <laughs> I mean, and, and, that, and that for him is the tipping point you know, a faith in the God of the preachers. And, um, but as I keep saying, and, you know, I I hate to repeat myself or maybe he understood that that wasn't going to happen to everybody. Yeah. And that. Right. I know. Yeah, that's, that's right. But it certainly happened to him Mm -hmm. and he's unequivocal about it. And, you know, it certainly, and it was the final piece. In other words, looking back on his life and his struggle, to stop drinking, you can see him slowly getting this piece and that piece and the other piece. And then, and he's still drinking and he's still drinking and he's still drinking. And then when he finally has this, what he called his hot flash experience, um, but it's so dramatic, you know. Um, at first he thought he had gone crazy. And actually the Williams James book, Varieties of Religious Experience, helped him because it describes other similar experiences that people have had through history. And that was it. After that, he never had another drink, which is pretty amazing yeah. because, you know, he uh, was a drunk. <laughs> well, But that's very religious. But I think he struggled to separate his life from the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. And, you know, I want to honor that struggle. Yeah. And and I will say I'm a little bit surprised. At, I've been interviewing um, a few people for this, tr- trying to think about the spirituality of recovery. And mm-hmm. I have actually heard two other stories that are very similar to that one. Of You know, of mm. not necessarily, mm. I mean, one of them was a uh, an Indian man who whose vision was, I mean, who also where the room opened up and it was not God, it was his ancestors, but it was, uh, you know... A, a mystical experience that was very dramatic and a moment of healing in a way from which he never could turn back again. I don't know. I mean, it surprises me to say that because uh, these, these are hard things to talk mm-hmm. about and strange things mm-hmm. to talk about. Um, I mean, did you have a dramatic experience before you got into recovery? Anything like that? I'm trying to think. I I sort of... I don't think so. Mm. In other words, I I don't 
I didn't. No, I mean, I didn't have. I mean, I would certainly remember if I had that yeah, yeah. that quality of experience. But no, I don't think I've ever had a direct experience of the divine. Mm-hmm. Well, indirect, sure, <laughs> but <laughs> but a direct experience where I said, "Oh, so this is the God of the preachers," or the room was. Sufi-. No, I'm I'm looking forward to having that, but. I mean, I've certainly had, you know, moments where my heart soared with the consciousness of, you know, each moment's preciousness. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about Paul on the road to Damascus. We're talking about being hit by lightning. And yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, everybody is not hit by lightning. I, I don't. My sense. Have is, you ever been? Have you ever had an experience? Have I had an experience? <laughs> no, I don't think I've had. I mean, I've had lots of experiences. But not that kind of mystical moment where you're transported. I mean, I envy that. I think it's wonderful yeah. to hear about. I was happy to see it in your book about Bill W. Um, and it was just struck me. It was very interesting because I had heard these stories in the last couple of weeks. I mean, from yeah, reading, well, I think, yeah, from reading your other work, I know you were not raised in a religious family. I mean, you said to me a minute ago that. You oh, are really I think oh, my you? father was quite religious. Oh, yeah. do you? I think he was um had a kind of very quirky but outstanding faith. Hmm. And I um you know he managed to get me to church almost every Sunday. I'm not quite sure how he did it. Um and he went himself I would say every Sunday. Hmm. And he was very, you know, he had a healthy skepticism. Um, he used to time the early communion service at 33 minutes, and if it went longer, he would start to roll his eyes. And, you know, but I think he, I think he had a very direct um, relationship, if that's the right word, with with God. Hmm. Uh, with the God of the preachers, and um, you know, he he certainly wrote about it in his journals, his struggles with that relationship. But but I uh, I certainly was raised. You know, my mother was another matter. She she decided pretty early on, as her father decided before her, that their God would be not the conventional God that I think for my grandfather, I think science sort of became God. And and he was a great scientist. Um, but my father really embraced the Episcopal God. And, mm. uh, you know, as I say, it was a, it was a somewhat bristly embrace because he was, you know, he was not a messianic type of person. But I think he really... Uh, you know, he had he had he had a faith that I can only envy, and I, I mean, I think of faith for me at least as not something I have; it's something I aim toward. And you know, it's uh, actually John Updike has written about this very beautifully. It's it's a goal. It's something I I struggle towards. It's something I try to point myself toward, but it's not something I ever, ever have, um, you know, the way I have uh, my keys in my pocket. Hmm. And, um, 
I, uh, but that doesn't make it any less real. But, you know, that idea that you could have an experience, as Bill Wilson did, um, where you just knew, that's really, I would love that. But, you know, you, you get what you get. And <laughs> how, how did you, how did your sense of that, uh, how has that been changed and informed by, by coming close to the 12 Steps? by alcohol and recovery from alcoholism? Well, I think that the 12 steps, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous is a very intimate uh, way of living, as Bill Wilson laid it out. And I think that for anybody who has faith, when they go into Alcoholics Anonymous, that faith becomes much more intimate. In other words, it's one thing entirely to believe in a God who controls all, and it's another thing to believe in a God who really cares whether or not, you know, you drink that tequila shot. Hmm. And it makes whatever your God is, whoever your God is, it makes it very, very personal and intimate. And I think that's, you know, one of the amazing things that Bill was able to do, he was able to take faith with a capital F and God with a capital G and 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 bring it right into people's hearts and minds so that that faith becomes, you know, whether you're an alcoholic or you're addicted to food or you're addicted to heroin, you know, God comes between your mouth and your hand. And that's just so amazing because <laughs> usually faith is something out there waiting for you, you know, or, I mean, usually these things are thought of, or conventionally these things are thought of as very much outside the scope of what happens between your mouth and your hand or your arm and your hand or whatever it is. And and he just really brought it home. And I think, you know, for anyone in recovery... It's very, very intimate. I think recovery, I think the, you know, the spirituality of recovery is, is very, very intimate. And I, and I think that's one of the reasons it works. I think that, you know, if you're not in recovery, you, you might believe that God was quite a distant character. But in order to recover in the way that Alcoholics Anonymous suggests it has to become almost the most intimate thing in your life. You know, you wrote a memoir of your life as a drinker, right? That was the subtitle. Mm -hmm. And you, mm -hmm. you wrote, there was a line I wanted to ask you about. You wrote, I know there is a God, and in finding that God, I have both the shock of something utterly familiar and the thrill of discovery. Mm. Tell me about that. Those well, two. I think that's sort of that's sort of um, that's sort of exactly what I was. It's sort of the another way of saying what I was trying to say. That you know, in searching for God, I mean, I believe that God is everywhere. I don't believe that God is somewhere off in, you know, Uzbekistan or I don't even want to use Uzbekistan. But I don't believe that God is you know in Alaska. I think that God is everywhere in as much as I can determine that there is a God. I mean, as I say, faith is not something I have. Um, it's something I, I wish to have. It's something that I struggle toward. But 
Um, so in that way, God has to be completely familiar and intimate and, and, and has to care. You know, it's God has his eye on the sparrow. I mean, that's one aspect of God. On, on the other hand, since God is undiscoverable and mysterious, there's the thrill of discovery. I mean, the, the, the way I've sort of come to be at peace with my own searching for, for God um, is that I say, uh, I just don't understand God. I can't understand God. That it's, that, that God is, whatever God is, it's beyond my ability to put into words, which isn't saying much. Most important things are beyond my ability to put into words. And it's beyond my ability to understand, which also isn't saying much. In other words, there are many, many things I can't understand. And, and therefore I can't say, where was God, you know, on 9-11 or where was God during the Holocaust? In other words, those are questions. Those are my puny little questions. Um, I just think, you know, in the moments that I can believe in God, it's I understand the vastness of God and 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 the kind of brokenness and puniness of my own intellect Um in coming to understand God. This is the problem with talking about these it's, things. It's impossible. Words right. just don't cut it. It defies words, you know? yeah. It's beyond words. Yeah. It's somewhere beyond words. And so many things are beyond words, yeah. but faith is really beyond words. So you're kind of struggling. It's like trying to get a tiger in a little cage. Yeah. But we're working on it. <laughs> <clears throat> we're working on it. I think we have to I think we have to keep I think it's so important that we have to keep trying to put words to it while we know that the words won't ever fit. But let me let me I mean I think I'm circling back to something we've already touched on but it's also worth trying to put words on. What is it about alcohol that that can force people so close to this intimacy that that you're describing? Well, I think you know what? I think it's not just alcohol. I think it's all addiction. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's something about addiction. I, I haven't really thought this through. So, but a- addiction is a, is a kind of, you know, just thinking about my own life. It, it comes from fear from, or this is just for me, you know, this is not okay. for any other yeah, addict. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, but it's kind of fear-based. It's it's kind of, you know, there's kind of lack of trust. I mean, I certainly can talk about it, you know, right now in terms of food. Um, I will say I'm going to eat two soy cutlets for lunch. And then around about 5 o'clock, I think, huh, there's never going to be any more food in my life. Hmm. <laughs> I'm going to starve to death. And the cupboard's going to be bare, and there's going to be nothing in the fridge, and the markets are going to be shut. And you see this fear. You know, when when people hear there's a hurricane coming, they line up at the supermarket Mm -hmm. as if, you know, I think that fear is very much present in human life. But so then, instead of waiting for dinner, I have to have whatever I have. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. it's, It's a lack of trust. It's it's a it's an inability to just think, you know what, it's gonna be all right. And like who was that? Saint Julian who said Julian of All Norwich. will be well. Yes. Yeah, all things will be well. Yeah. Um it's a it's a it's the opposite of that. It's thinking it's it's a kind of panic. It's uh 
there's never going to be any more food. There's never going to be another drink. There's never going to be enough for me. And I think that addiction, or as I say, I, I want to be as tolerant as Bill Wilson was. <laughs> um, but I think in my experience, addiction comes out of that that wanting, that that hunger, and that it combined with a kind of fear and distrust and the idea that there's not going to be enough. And that's very intimate. In other words, you won't get a lot of people on the radio even copping to this stuff. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, therefore, the the to put that into remission, as Bill would say, or to calm it down, you, you have to have a faith or a system or a whatever you're going to call it um, that's very intimate as well because it's intimate. It's private. It's personal. And I think... You know, I often wonder why we live in a culture that's so blind to alcoholism. And I think that's one of the reasons. It's so private. It's so personal what a person drinks or what they don't drink. And um, and I think that's partly also the basis, what we were talking about before, of, you know, Bill's understanding of the importance of anonymity is that um, anonymity sort of protects that privacy. It means that, mm. you know that incredibly intimate private nature of addiction and, you know, the treatment for addiction, of that change of heart. I mean, what could be more private? Which which intimate? also allows it to show itself, right? To show itself to others. How that, do you mean? That anonymity. Well, I think the anonymity protects, you know, makes it feel safer for an addict to seek treatment, obviously, but I think it protects the incredibly private nature of it. I mean, you know, the human heart is such a such a private and, and frightening place. But I also think that it, you know, I also think that Bill understood that anonymity is um, possibly certainly one of the most important spiritual principles, that it you know, that if you go around thinking, oh, I'm so-and-so and I've done such-and-such, that that really takes you further away from whatever is the center of faith, um, whether you want to call it God or Uncle Carmine. Um, mm-hmm. That uh, you know, as, uh, that you know, the worldly. I mean, Thoreau is so good on this. That the, but that the worldly things, the accomplishments of men, the possessions of men, those are things that really separate you um, from the truly important things. From you know, from that apprehension of nature or God or faith that I think we're all searching for. I want to ask you about a couple of the other spiritual disciplines that are part of, of AA, <clears throat> of, the, of the 12 steps, and mm-hmm. um, like storytelling. You know, why, mm. why is that a spiritual discipline? And you are a oh, storyteller, so question. I, that's I really want to hear your thoughts question. on it. That's such a good question. Well, storytelling... You know, storytelling, I I think storytelling is the whole game. I mean, we understand our own lives by telling ourselves stories. (laughs) And uh, it was Phyllis Rose's brilliant perception that a good marriage is a marriage in which both people have the same story or complementary stories. In other words, if you have a marriage where an ugly man says, well, she married me because I'm rich, 
and a beautiful woman thinks, I married him for his soul, you have a problem. But if you have a married, no matter what the stories are. Whether they're true or not. Right. Whether they're true or not. (laughs) Whether they have any basis in fact or not. If you have two people who have the same story going on in their head about their lives, you have a good marriage. I mean, it's so interesting. And people understand everything in their lives by telling themselves stories about it. In other words, storytelling is really the, it's not even, it's the fabric of our lives. I mean, every single thing you do, I mean, I have a story about why I became a writer and what I'm doing as a writer. You know, whether or not these stories are true, that's a completely different question And what is true. So storytelling, I think, is the agent of all change and understanding in life if I may make that claim. And, I mean, I don't even think you can argue with it because that's how you do it. I mean, I know that you, you know, have a story that you've told yourself about why you became a journalist and why it's important to you. And, you know, this is how, and and for those of us who had difficult childhoods or difficult marriages, we have stories about why those things happened and what we did to make them happen and what we didn't do. You know, we're all doing this all the time. And um, so in a way, Alcoholics Anonymous just partakes of that understanding. And I think Bill, in his genius, I do think the world of this man, um, understood that, that, that storytelling is how we understand our lives. And, of course, he used that to help alcoholics understand their alcoholism and you know, by telling stories, by telling his own story in the book of Alcoholics Anonymous, but also by appending um, a dozen, and it's more now, other stories told by alcoholics in that book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and by structuring meetings around, and the first meetings were in, you know, Bill and Lois's house on Clinton Street in Brooklyn, by structuring meetings around storytelling, he really enabled people to be drawn in who might not otherwise be drawn in. I mean, it's the old writing principle of show, don't tell. You know, if I say to you, you're an alcoholic, you're going to say goodbye. If I say to you, you know, this happened to me and 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 then this happened to me, there might be something Mm -hmm. in that list of things that happened to me where you go, you know what? That happened to me too. (laughs) And that's, you know, the best way of communication that we have. And Bill understood that so well. So I don't know if I'm answering your question, but I think I do think storytelling is one of the most powerful, you know, engines of understanding that we have in general. And he just took that energy and harnessed it because he understood. And I mean, I think Dr. Silkworth helped him understand. I mean, when Bill was getting sober and he was at Towns Hospital, apparently when he first got sober, he was quite preachy about it. And he would go around saying, you know, you're an alcoholic and this is what you have to do. And he slowly had to learn that that didn't work. It doesn't work with anything. And I think the way the story goes, right before Bill went to Akron, Ohio, uh, Dr. Silkworth said to him, you know, don't tell people what you know about alcoholism. Just tell them about yourself. Talk about yourself. Talk about your own experience. So that when Bill went and met Dr. Bob in Akron, that's what he did. He didn't say to Dr. Bob, who of course had drunk away his practice, he didn't say, you're an alcoholic and here's what you have to do. He said to Dr. Bob, I'm an alcoholic and here's what happened to me. Mm. This happened and this happened and this happened. And before he had finished telling his story, 
Bob was going, oh, my God. I understand. So somehow in the simple act of telling what happened, we're also making meaning. I think so. Oh, absolutely. Because we choose what we tell, don't we? Mm -hmm. In other words, I'm I'm always saying this to writers that in any five-minute period, there are a million details. (laughs) You know, you can... There's so many details in everyone's life that choosing is almost as imaginative as imagining. So when you tell a story, you choose what details to use. I could say, I came over here to the studio in the rain, and um, on the way over, I saw a woman get hit by a car in Central Park West. And, uh, you know, people ran over to help her, and the ambulance came and took her away. Or I could say, I came over here to the studio um, and it's spring, and the park is full of daffodils. And on the way, both of these stories are true. On the way over, I saw a woman walking the most beautiful dog I've ever seen, and he wasn't even on a leash. And I crossed Central Park West, and I, you know, so, I mean, and I can tell 17 versions of, as can you, okay, of so the last half no, hour. So I'm trying to, I'm, I'm, I'm trying sorry. to be too, li- no, don't be sorry, it's great. I want to be, I'm pushing this, and I don't even know if it's a fair thing, but what's spiritual in that? Again, what is spiritual oh, in this discipline? what's spiritual in that? That's a really good question. Yeah. Well, to me, um, spiritual, you know, the most spiritual thing anybody can do is connect with another human being. And that's how we connect. Storytelling. I mean, that's what, that's what storytelling is. Sometimes we're connecting with ourselves, as in the happy marriage, but... Um, but I think the ways that we, I mean, the ways that we connect with other people are all st- storytelling. I mean, that's what we do. That's how we talk to each other. I mean, I'm always saying this to to writing students. I'm saying to them, you already know how to do this because you call your friend and you say, guess what happened? You know, I walked over and blah, 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 blah. You, you've already structured your life as a series of stories. We just do it automatically. And so... I think in Alcoholics Anonymous, the energy of this and the ability that we all have, the incredible eloquence that we all have about our own lives, is harnessed in the service of connecting one alcoholic to another. And, of course, that was one of Bill's pieces that, you know, one of the ways to allow an alcoholic to understand their disease is to connect them with another alcoholic. Right. I mean, and that gets at another uh, discipline or aspect of Alcoholics Anonymous, a recovery that... You can also find in all the religious traditions just this value of community, of relationship. Exactly, exactly, exactly. But it's so, so carefully nurtured. In yes. AA. Well, I, I think, you know, what, what people get in AA is, is, you know, precious doesn't even cover it. We were saying how words don't really, <laughs> don't really do it, but for an alcoholic... Um, who has not been able to stop drinking, to be able to stop drinking is one of the most miraculous things that uh, anybody ever sees. And it isn't just miraculous for the alcoholic. It's miraculous for the alcoholic's family and everyone around them. I mean, people in Alcoholics Anonymous do have 
a change of heart. And it's ultimately mysterious. In other words, we can break it down and talk about storytelling and this and that. But ultimately, something happens to people who go to Alcoholics Anonymous um, with all its lack of rules and regulations um, that enables them to stop drinking a day at a time. And that really, I mean, this was my first exposure to Alcoholics Anonymous was when my father went and he didn't want to go. He'd been to meetings. He didn't like them, blah, 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 blah. And finally, you know, through a long, I'm not going to tell the stories, but um, he went to rehab and he came out a different person. He He just... You know, he had when he went into rehab, he was just this sour. He was ready to die. He just sat around criticizing all the time. You could just tell he was miserable, and so he made everybody else miserable. And he came out of rehab and started going to AA meetings, and he was a, a completely different person. He was totally engaged with the world. He, he suddenly wanted to learn how to work the dishwasher so that he could <laughs> take care of himself. He, you know, he was funny. He was empathetic. He was concerned. He was, you know, he was involved in other people's lives. I mean, he had a change of heart that would blow, that blew us all away. And that happens in Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a it's a big big deal when people stop drinking and and have that change of heart. And I think that everything that Bill put into place in both in the book Alcoholics Anonymous and in the book The Twelve Steps and the Twelve Traditions is uh, part of that. You know, a little while ago, we were wondering about the meaning of this phrase, the age of miracles has returned. And mm, and I mm. and I suspect that that's what those early people were describing, is that there could, in fact, be miraculous changes in, in individual lives. I guess. I, I have such mixed feelings about the Oxford group, you know, because oh, ultimately, well, they severed Bill and mm-hmm, Lois. Mm-hmm. And I mean... Mm-hmm. It was one of these disasters that turned out to be a great stroke of luck because, of course, soon after um, the Oxford group decided that Bill and Lois were not their kind of people, the way they expressed it was Bill and Lois were not maximum. That maximum was the Oxford group's word for acceptable to the Oxford group. They, you know, they, they, they told Oxford group members that they weren't allowed to go to the AA meetings at Clinton Street on Tuesday night. And, you know, Bill forgave them, but I don't. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we've got that out. <laughs> I, you he know, was a much more forgiving person we, than I am. Um, here's, we, uh, we need to finish, and I, I feel like, there's, I feel like we've, we've covered a lot of ground. There's so much else we could talk about. I want to ask my producers if they have any questions, but I also really just want to ask you if there's anything else you'd like to say on this subject of the spirituality of Recovery as you know it from the inside. Let me. I'm going to listen for a minute to my producer, while, and then I'll come okay. back. Okay. Okay. Um, did you have any thoughts? Yeah, I, I was just thinking, you know, about the existence, the existence of God, and and how 
uh, I at least am always searching for some kind of proof of the existence of God. And it seems to me that, that one of the proofs that comforts me is when you see what happens to people who go into Alcoholics Anonymous, um, and it's not just Alcoholics Anonymous, it's all the 12-step programs, but you see people, and many of us know people like this, who cannot stop drinking, who cannot stop eating, who cannot stop doing drugs, and no matter what they do, and they try everything, they try hypnosis and willpower and psychoanalysis, and you know, no matter what they do, they cannot stop. No matter what they do, you know, they reach for that drink. And, and I think, you know, what is it? Half of Americans are, you know, have an alcoholic close by in some way. Mm -hmm. And when, and when you see a person who is really out of control in that way, and it's a horrible thing to see, um, it's a horrible thing to live with. When you see them go into Alcoholics Anonymous, and then suddenly they have 30 days and 90 days, and five years and ten years, it it makes me know that there's some other force there, some other force for good. Because these are people who, no matter what they did, could not keep their hand from reaching for that drink. And all of a sudden, because of something that happens in Alcoholics Anonymous, I don't want to call it God because Bill doesn't, <laughs> They're able to not reach for that drink. And so to my mind, you know, there's a countervailing force to addiction. And you see it at work in people who go into Alcoholics Anonymous and go into recovery. And to my mind, that's proof that there is some kind of benevolent power at large and that, you know, it, you can, you know, that's, that's, that's the beginning that there is a that there is a benevolent force and and then of course to my mind it becomes a whole benevolent harmony but that's my problem but <laughs> you know but that's proof to me that and I and I you know maybe the brain chemistry changes I'm sure it does and maybe it has something to the do with the power of the group I'm sure it does but there's something mysterious at the heart of Alcoholics Anonymous and whether you call it God or not, there's something mysterious there that, that makes people whole again. And to my mind, that's a pretty good argument for faith. Hmm. Well, that's a good last word. Um, it's great. Thank you. And thanks for, thanks. thanks for going all these places we went to. I One thing we like to do when we create these radio hours is also use readings that might be important to you, our, our music. Mm -hmm. I mean, we, you don't have to do this off the top of your head. We could do this by email. But if you wanted to propose even some readings from the big book or, I don't know, poetry or fiction that you that, that is meaningful for you. Well, so many, so much literature is meaningful for me. I mean, I just did, a, you know, your six favorite books for a magazine. It, it It's so hard because mm -hmm. it changes. I mean, right, right. now I'm reading Walden. And mm. I mean, everybody should read Walden, especially the second chapter, which is one of the most brilliant things ever written. Okay. And, you know, The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, which is the ultimate deadbeat dad, vengeful ex, you know, single mother book. It's amazing. Mm. It's just the most amazing book. I don't know why everybody isn't reading it all the time because <laughs> these are the issues of our society. And, he, and Hawthorne had them. You know, he understood it very, very well. Mm. And put it down very, very beautifully in a very short, dramatic book. I mean, 
it it couldn't be better. So, but these are the guys I'm thinking about right now. Yeah. You know, Emerson, those Emerson essays are so amazing. Um, the book of I think that everybody who thinks they might be alcoholic or I, I say this, I hate to promote another book while I'm promoting my book, but the book called Alcoholics Anonymous is certainly the most important book about alcoholism ever written. It's as fresh today as it was when it was written. Is, and there, a, is there a passage that you think of immediately, a part of it? or um, I know that's hard. I'm... Well, I love the, the, the chapter called, I think it's called How It Works, in which, um, and it is primarily written by Bill. He just goes through all the steps one by one um, and, you know, in in very brief form, but it's extremely, extremely eloquent. There are many, there are many passages um, in Alcoholics Anonymous and in the 12 Steps and the 12 Traditions that I think are are extraordinarily powerful. In the, in the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions, Bill writes that it's a spiritual axiom that when we are disturbed, there's something wrong with us. I guess he says, when I am disturbed, there's something wrong with me. And that whole idea of personal responsibility for our own feelings, to use a little <laughs> psychobabble, um, it's so beautifully put. And and that's a lot of what Bill believed. That's a lot of his message that, you know, you can't blame other people for your feelings, that you you need to you know, be responsible for your own feelings, for the for the stories that you're telling about your own life. Um, you need to be the author of those stories and you need to take responsibility as the author of those stories. So there are a lot of things like that, that, that you know, there's that famous phrase in the stories part of the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, where um, the, the writer says, acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. Um and again, that's talking about, you know, how a whole situation can only be changed by the person who doesn't like it changing themselves. There's a lot of that, and it comes right out of Emerson. I mean, I realize mm. I'm. It comes right out of self-reliance. That whole idea mm. that what happens to you is not God's fault or your ex-husband's fault. It's it's for you. You know, fault is the wrong word, but it's. But it's, a, it's so interesting that you make those connections, I think, to Emerson. It's, well, they're yeah. just so there. I mean, you're yeah. the author of your own life. I mean, Thoreau says, um, here's, a, here's one of my favorite sentences on earth. He says, I went to the woods to live deliberately uh, so that I might front the essential facts of life and learn what they had to teach and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived. Mm. Hey, you know, there it is. <laughs> but it's him. You know, he's not saying I came to the woods to escape my bad neighbors. <laughs> I mean, I mean, all these people are seeing the same thing. You're the you're the author. You're the storyteller. Yeah, the but there's always this life. juxtaposition in in recovery that in AA, on the one hand, it's up to you, and on the other hand, it's You can only face that because it's bigger than you, right? Well, I think one of Bill's geniuses is that, I mean, I put this in the biography, and when I put it in the biography, I wondered if I should. But everything that's in the book, its opposite is also in the book. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, Bill was the master of paradox because, of course, as we've been saying, a lot of this stuff is beyond words, so when you try to put it into words, when you try to say, as I was just saying, you're the author of the story of your life, 
you're really missing the mark. In other words, in one way, you're hitting the mark. But in another way, it's also true that you are absolutely not the author of the story of your own life. And that the only way that you can live a life with any meaning is to understand that it isn't up to you. You're not in charge. Some other force is in charge. You know, that you have to be in sync with the harmony of nature or God or whatever you want to call it. And that you have to let go and get out of the way. And that's also true. So... You know, all these spiritual principles, I think, are profoundly paradoxical. Yes. And and I think Bill understood that. I mean, you have to both, you know, allow God to do for you or God or whatever um, what God will do and, you know, do what you need to do as well. It's, it's um, you know, it's true that consistency is the hobgoblin of small minds, to go back to Emerson. <laughs> I love that. But... <laughs> but I do think that that um, you know that all spiritual principles are profoundly paradoxical, and that that speaks to the puniness of our human understanding. That that's a clue. That that everything you can say about a spiritual search that its opposite is also true. For me, that's a clue that my mind is really a pretty small thing. But there, I think something quite amazing about the twelve steps is how because of their simplicity and spareness, or in their simplicity and spareness, they make room for all the paradox. They do. No, I think Bill, it's, it's, as I say, it's part of Bill's genius. But, you know, right in the book Alcoholics Anonymous, he writes, um, in the chapter called To Wives, he writes uh, to the wives of alcoholics, uh, don't, you know, don't get bent out of shape. He doesn't put it in that way. He says, either God has removed your husband's desire to drink or God has not. And then in the next chapter, he talks about a woman who nags her husband into drinking, you know. So it's both true that alcoholism exists out of context and it's true that it also, that environmental factors play a part. In other words, mm-hmm. he's always he's always saying one thing and then saying the exact opposite. Yeah. <laughs> but I think it's because they're both true. <laughs> 